Thanks so much, Kim, and good morning again. Um, carols are a, a bit of a curious thing, actually, aren't they? Uh, because think about secular media, which often loves to criticise Christianity and at times uh, wants nothing to do with Christianity, and yet secular media will host events like this one. If you could just keep the PowerPoint on, please, Rob. Thank you. Uh, Carols by Candlelight. Who watches this, by the way, uh, each year? So there's Carols by Candlelight, there's Carols in the Domain. I think the Domain one is, is generally a little bit more uh, secular or, or mainstream or something. But uh, nonetheless, they, they both have lots of Christian-based Christmas carols. And when you look out uh, at the people who are performing on this thing, they're belting out these songs about Jesus. It's actually quite crazy. You look out over the, the audience and there's mums and dads who, again, would want nothing to do with church or Jesus during the week. They're building out things like, joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's actually quite crazy. Now, um, we could put it down to sentimentality, of course. Carols are just sort of woven into the Australian tradition these days, and that's a good thing. Uh, but it is a curious thing, isn't it? Especially when you get lyrics like this one. Glory to the newborn king. Hark the herald angels sing. What a line to sing. Because Aussies don't easily give glory to anyone, do we? <laughs> Tall poppy syndrome and all that. In fact, the, uh, the Socceroos have just have, uh, indisputably, had their most successful World Cup campaign ever. And yet, this is the headline the next morning. Ultimate brain fade failure of the Socceroos. It's their most successful campaign ever. Uh, and then you get the idea of a king. Here's King Charles, of course. Now, um, after her passing, Queen Elizabeth was thought of very you know, highly. Uh, and there are some Aussies who love the idea of royalty. But if this bloke or Queen Elizabeth, when she was around, actually tried exerting power over us, I imagine that a lot of Australians wouldn't really like it. We don't really like the idea of a ruling king. We're okay with a figurehead king, but not one who actually exerts authority. And then newborns. Well, they're all right. <laughs> Except, of course, when you're on a plane or you're out to dinner or you're up in the night for the fourth time. Well, maybe we don't think all that highly of newborns either. So what a line to sing. Glory to the newborn king. Why would anyone sing that? Why would anyone believe that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks in this season of Advent. What does it mean to sing glory to the newborn king? Why make a big deal about a newborn? Why call him a king? Why give him glory? What if we don't want to? What implications does this actually have for our lives? This morning, we're going to answer those questions from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We're just camping out in those four verses. I had Kim also read for us from Luke chapter 2, just to help orient us to the Christian narrative of what happened on the first Christmas. Uh, but we're camping out really in those four, first four verses of Hebrews. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus is without equal. Jesus is without equal. 
We're going to see that in two ways. Firstly, it's because he fulfills, uh, sorry, he, he is God's unique revelation. And then secondly, he fulfills God's unique role. Unique revelation, unique role, showing that Jesus is without equal. Let's pray as we get into this together. Lord God, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us now. We pray give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last year, Marvel released a new show called What If. Did anyone watch it? Yep. Um, my wife's hand is sheepishly up. Uh, I watched it as well, and largely because I'm beholden to my wife, who loves Marvel things. <laughs> I actually don't know if they're good shows or not. I'm, I, I think I'm just in love, and therefore I think they're great. <laughs> but but uh, we watched this show, What If. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a character here uh, whose name is The Watcher. He's sort of a, a weird-looking bloke who uh, has these eyes that look out over the multiverse, because that's a thing in Marvel. There's not just one universe, it's a multiverse. And he has this little line that he says at the beginning of each episode. I am the watcher, and I observe all that transpires here, and I do not, cannot, will not interfere. Right. So he's like a silent observer who sees all, but isn't involved. And there are many people today, many Aussies, I think, that view God in a similar way. He's out there. He created things, perhaps. But he's not actually involved. right? He sees and silently observes, but doesn't interact. He exists, but he doesn't engage with us. Scripture presents an entirely different picture of God. And you see it here in Hebrews chapter 1. Open up in your Bible if you've got one there. Uh, otherwise, just plug into Google Hebrews 1 and click the first result. It'll come right up. The first thing we see here in Hebrews chapter 1 is that God speaks. It's mentioned twice in the first verse. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God speaks. He is not merely a silent observer like the watcher in Marvel. He is a person who speaks. He is not merely an abstract idea to be thought about, to be argued over. He is an intelligent creator mind who reveals himself to us. And here in Hebrews chapter 1, we're given a contrast of two ways in which God has spoken. There is a way that he spoke long ago, and there is a way that he is speaking now. In fact, it's a new way, a way in which he hadn't spoken before. And across verse 1 to 2, we see these three contrasts in the way that God speaks. A contrast of time, a contrast of means, and a contrast of audience. And all these three sort of coalesce to show why it is that Jesus is God's unique revelation. So first, a contrast to do with time. Verse 1 gives us one side of history. It's there in the first two words, long ago. Long ago. There's one side of history. And then the second side of history in verse 2. But in these last days. There's two sides of history. And there's a solid line between them from Scripture's point of view. And that solid line is the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Now, 
lots of people in the world today would say that history divides uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Like, here's the line between them, and it might be the invention of the computer, okay? There's the thing that sort of puts the BC and the AD on opposite sides. Uh, all sorts of things might be there. Um, but here in Scripture, we're told that Jesus actually is the dividing line. That's where we get BC and AD from, literally. And it's so crucial, this era after Jesus' birth, which we call the last days. It's so crucial that this phrase, the last days, is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. If you've been reading through Isaiah with us in our church Bible reading plan, you may have encountered it a couple of times in your reading. These last days were the time of, of sort of hope that the people in Old Testament times, long ago, the Jews, the Israelites, they were looking forward to these last days coming because it would be the time when God's promises would finally be fulfilled. The Messiah would finally come. He would be born and he would bring salvation. Finally, they're waiting hundreds of years for these last days to come. But Scripture tells us here in verse 2 that the last days are here. It says that they are these last days. We're no longer waiting. God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. These are the last days. And if you were a group of Israelites or Jews who'd been waiting, you'd be celebrating right now. You'd be up in your seat. You'd be standing on your seat probably because this is absolutely enormous news. This is the last days. But we easily miss the significance of it. I think partly because, uh, just as people, we become easily accustomed to sort of the, uh, what would you say, the, the accoutrements of, of our time, right? Here we are positioned in history with certain blessings and certain advantages and they just become part of the furniture. Imagine going back to a time prior to computers, for example, or prior to fridges and freezers, <laughs> or prior to electricity itself. You know, These things are, are just, again, they're literally part of the furniture for us. Uh, but there was a time when they were not. And we don't remember that. I think so too with the fact that we are living in the last days. This is the time that millions of people waited hundreds of years to see. And many of them didn't get to see it. But here we are in this time when God is speaking in a new way. What a privilege. Feel that stir you, hopefully, towards gratitude. I am hearing God speak in a new way. How is he speaking? What is he saying? Well, that brings us to our second contra contrast, one to do with means. And again, the sides are split here between verse 1 and verse 2. So in verse 1, long ago, God spoke at many times and in many ways, if you can see that there. Now, this is a positive statement, right? God spoke in the past in many times and in many ways. He spoke through angels. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through prophecies. He spoke through prophets that he literally gave the words to. Uh, he spoke sometimes through, uh, what was it, the Urim and the Thummim we were looking at recently, casting lots, bones on the ground. He spoke through lots of different ways. Why? Because God's gratuitous desire is simply to be known. To put it another way, God didn't just speak one language in the Old Testament. He spoke many different times, many different ways. He's a God who longs to be known. But now, 
he's speaking in a way that puts all of the former things to shame, that makes it look as though all of those things are, are just a shadow. They're like a it's just sort of something minor, something small, compared to this new way of speech that God has today. And verse 2 tells us what it is. In these last days, he had spoken to us by his son. You see, in the past, when God spoke in many times, in many ways, it's almost like you've just got a whole lot of scattered puzzle pieces. Okay? So this piece shows you the sky, and this piece shows you a, a bit of the mountain, uh, and this piece shows you something else, but what are they all pointing to? Where do they all lead? What's the big picture? You've just got these scattered puzzle pieces. And each of them does give you a little bit, but obviously not the whole thing. Jesus coming, the, the Son of God, is not just another puzzle piece to add in to the collection. Okay, This is a totally new way of speech for God. He sends his own son, not as another puzzle piece, but actually as the puzzle completed. The one that all the other ways of speaking actually point to. The Old Testament, all the different things God said there, point to the coming of the son in these last days. He is the revelation of God. Now, this is actually what Islam gets so wrong about Jesus. If you've ever talked with a Muslim or studied Islam, I've done a little bit and had some Muslim friends at different points. This is what they get really wrong. Now, um, when I've had Muslim friends in the past or chatted with Muslims, they've gone to great lengths to assure me that um, they think Jesus is fantastic. Right? Um, they do believe that Jesus was a man sent from God. They believe that he was a prophet that he spoke God's words. However, they deny that he is the Son of God. This is exactly the departure point between Christianity and Islam. However, what we see here is that he's not just another prophet. He's not just another puzzle piece. He is the Son of God, the complete revelation of who God is. And one implication of this is that as the Son, Jesus is God's personal revelation to us. See, uh, last year, Coles had this killer advertising campaign. If you can get that up for me, Rob. It uh, has just a picture of faces on it. Uh, next one along, please. Yep, that's the one. Uh, I don't know if you remember this from last year. So it was when we were coming out of lockdowns and everyone felt pretty disconnected. And um, it was 60 seconds, just really short and sharp. But it had all these people laughing sometimes crying. There was a scene with um, a, a guy seeing his grandson for the first time on Zoom. <laughs> so it's just this, this quick little capture of people coming out of lockdown and enjoying relationship again for the first time in months. And it ended with this line, here's to the joy we've all been waiting for. Really effective ad. Look it up on Google if you can, just Cole's Christmas ad 2021. Really, really effective. It has stirring soundtrack and everything. Um, and it goes to show us just how central personal relationship is for all of us. The fact that a big corporation locked onto this and made a mozza out of it. Um, but of course, we all know this, right? Coming out of COVID. Of course, we need to be present with each other. Of course, we need to be physically in the same room. Now, one reason why Jesus is a better word then what came before is that he is God's personal word to us. 
the Son of God took on flesh and came to dwell amongst us. He is God with us, Emmanuel. There's the joy we've really been waiting for. In fact, again, people for generations were waiting for. Because by trusting in Christ, we can have a personal connection with the God who made us and who loves us. There's our second contrast. God spoke at one time, in many times, in many ways, but now he's spoken once for all through his son, his direct personal revelation of himself. Third contrast, one of audience. In the past, he spoke to our fathers, that is, our ancestors. But now he speaks, what's it say? To us. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, it's just two short words to us. But you can easily miss them in amongst all the great truths that are here in this verse. They're huge words. He has spoken to us. He didn't just speak to some people in a long ago shadowy past and then forgot about the rest of us. He is speaking right now in these last days through his son to you and me. Have you ever thought something like, God, I wish that you would speak to me. I wish you'd make yourself clearer. Or maybe you've had a feeling of something like, if only I could hear God's voice. Very normal thing. I've wondered those things. I've felt those things at different points. The thing is, he is speaking. And it's not just through a, a miracle or a prophet or an angel or a sign in the sky or something. It's through his son to you and to me. It's through the actual historical personal coming of Jesus into the world. He's speaking through who Jesus was and what he said and what he did, and especially through what he accomplished in his death and his resurrection. He's showing us his infinite love in the fact that the Son went and died for us. He's showing us his infinite power in that Christ took the wrath of God that we deserve and fully exhausted it for those who had come to trust in him by faith. He's showing us his infinite wisdom, not only in the teaching of Christ, but in the fact that in Christ, God has fulfilled this incredible plan of salvation in a way that you and I never would have designed, but that perfectly works to actually bring us to God. These are the ways that God is speaking to us right now through his son. So here's the question. Are you hearing him? Are you hearing God speak to you now? through the person and work of Jesus. These are the last days, friends. This is the time people were waiting for. It's here. And yet sometimes we get dissatisfied with the good news about Jesus. We, we think, I've heard that before. I've heard that ever since I was a kid. And don't you understand how old I am now, Dad? <laughs> I've heard it so many times. Give me something new. We don't need something new. We live in a world obsessed with the new. We don't need something new. Listen to how John Piper, a pastor over in America, challenges us. He says, Have I really heard the word of God in the person and the teaching and the work of the Son? Is the aching of my soul, that is this, this questioning disposition that we have to go, God, why won't you speak to me? Is the aching of my soul and the confusion of my mind 
really owing to the fact that I feel like I have exhausted hearing this word and need another word? Is it really because I need something new? And so I feel another gracious rebuke to my unperceptive and presumptuous ears. The problem is not with God's clarity of speech. The problem is always and only with our ability to hear. Unperceptive, at times presumptuous. There's something to repent of here, friends. But hear God's gracious invitation. We don't need something more because we already have all we need in this unique, final, full revelation of God in his Son, spoken to us now. And we see that even more as we move into our next point as well. Jesus is without equal because he fulfills God's unique role. We're picking up halfway through a sentence in verse 2 with the word Son. You can see that there, that he has spoken to us by his Son. And the next word that follows that is whom. The rest of this little section actually is all just expanding on that word son. It's going, here's who this son is. Here's what he does. Here's what he's like. And so the first thing that we see here is is following right after the word son, right? The one whom he, that is God, appointed the heir of all things. An heir inherits things, right? That's obvious enough. But I wonder what that word inheritance conjures up for you. Is that a positive word or is that a negative word? I actually was watching a uh, a show not too long ago where um, the older son found a clause in like the the will of his dad which would actually completely disinherit the younger son. And he saw it and his eyes lit up and he went, I can get double my money. And so he went for it. He got some lawyers and, and managed to totally shaft the younger son. And, and the, the brother was like, what are you doing? I thought you were my brother and da, da 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 and all this stuff. Sometimes inheritances are quite like that. Maybe not that extreme, but there are occasions for conflict and for selfishness and hard decisions about who gets what. Um, accusations go around. Oh, you got this, but I got this. So sometimes inheritances are a time for conflict. Or on the other hand, sometimes they are to the undeserving. We look out into the world and we we look around and we see company directors who fell into their role because dad's the head of the company. We see people who have incredible fame for no reason other than their last name starts with K and ends in Ardashian. (laughs) And we see people who have way too much money, way too young. Inheritance sometimes go to the undeserving. What about Jesus? What kind of heir is he? Well, firstly, there's no conflict around his inheritance. Right here, it's God himself who appoints him as heir of all things. A couple of verses here, Ephesians 1 verse 10. God has revealed his plan to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And Colossians 1, 19 to 20, for in him, in Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his 
cross. You see, creation itself, including everything and every person, is going to be united under Christ. United either willingly because we cling to him now by faith or bending the knee um, fearfully because we realize how wrong that we've been. But all things are going to be Christ's inheritance. Everything we see, everything that exists, all belongs to him. No contest, no competition. He is the heir of all creation. This is not like a family argument where the accusations go around. This is settled already. Christ is the heir. Is he an undeserving heir? Like celebrities or nepotistic recipients of a director position at a company. Perish the thought. How could Christ be an undeserving heir when he's actually earned his role as heir? Come down to verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, Hear the order of these statements. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Most High. I think the writer here puts those things in order intentionally. Jesus first goes and obediently follows the Father, even though that means his death, even though that means facing the judgment of God on our behalf. He does God's will. And then after making purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, it's it's spelled out this way, that Christ became nothing, even facing death on a cross. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name, and every knee will bow, etc., etc., etc. Right? That therefore, or that after is linking these two things such that Christ's faithful fulfillment of God's salvation plan, which meant his death at the cross, is what qualifies him to be the heir of all things. He did what no one can do to save humanity, and therefore he occupies the position that no human can occupy except for him, the man who is God, who alone can save us. Right? That makes him a king like no other. He's not the kind of king that simply rules because it feeds his ego. He's the kind of king who has laid down his life to get his leadership role. He's the kind of king whose love is the foundation of his authority. He is a saviour king. That's why he alone is the heir of all creation. There's the first thing about Jesus here. Why he fulfills a unique role. And this means no one else deserves our worship but him, friends. What else do we see about Jesus' unique role here? Well, back at the end of verse 2, Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. And don't you just love the way this is phrased? Take a look at it, right? He's the son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Just by the way. He's the heir of all things. And just throwing in there, he also created everything. Isn't that just great? (laughs) I love the way scripture phrases things sometimes. About this time last year, uh, NASA launched the James Webb Space Telescope. Have you um, seen any of these images? They're really, really cool. 
Um, of course, before the James Webb was the Hubble telescope, and that's still up there. That was launched in 1990, but the James Webb now uh, enables, I think it's six or seven times the exposure uh, for images. That just means things can be much clearer. You can get much more detail. You can see stars that are further away. And so there have been images that have come out as this James Webb telescope is now sort of hovering 1.5 million kilometres from Earth. Here's one of them. Uh, on the right is the original from the Hubble telescope. And you can see the clarity that, that the James Webb has now introduced on the left. What you're seeing there is a cluster of galaxies. So each of those little dots is not just a star. It is a galaxy of millions of stars. All of that was created through Jesus. All of that was created through Jesus. We're just now seeing it for the first time. He created it. We're just catching up. Here's another one. This here is called Stephen's Quintet. Again, five galaxies. This is a, a new image for us. First time we've seen it in such clarity. One more. I, I love this one. This is called the Cosmic Clips. Uh, now, what that is is ionised gas that's all sort of escaping from uh, the birth process of new stars. And so the new thing in this image, because um, the Hubble, Hubble got this cliff image as well, but you couldn't see the stars behind it quite so much. Uh, and so it's actually showing that as these new stars and new galaxies are being born, um, this gas is coming off and, of course, it looks like mountains. Mountains formed by the hand of Christ. Now, it's taken scientists decades and astronomers decades to move from the 1990 Hubble telescope to the 2021 James Webb Space Telescope. And all of the underlying technology is, as well is, you know, centuries of physics. And yet, they're just catching up. And seeing these images on the screen, we're just catching up. Christ created these things. And in fact, when you look closely, it's not just that he created these things. Take a look at verse 3. Right? He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We'll get to that in a moment. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Literally in the original language, it's that he carries the universe by the word of his power. You might recognize this guy. Who's this? Atlas. Atlas, that's right. Now, in Greek mythology, uh, Atlas was one of the titans, and uh, he was involved in a war against the Olympians, uh, Zeus and, and all his mates, and he lost that war. And so his punishment was he would have to hold up the sky on his back for all eternity. Pretty sucky punishment. <laughs> and, uh, and he strained and he suffered under it. It was a, a burden for him to hold up the sky, a punishment. Jesus is different. He upholds or carries the whole universe. How? What's it say? Yeah, the, the word of his power or his powerful word. This guy needs those muscles, titan muscles, to hold up the sky and does it begrudgingly. Jesus needs but a word to tell those stars, keep existing. To tell that ionized gas, keep spreading at 10,000 meters a second or whatever. Just a word. That's his power. And Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Created and sustained by the power of Christ's word. Now, put that up against today's self-sufficient way of seeing the world. 
what we might call expressive individualism. I don't know if you've seen statements like this before. Uh, just be true to who you are. Be free, be true, be you. At the centre of this universe is one letter. The letter I. I am the centre. Uh, I'm the one calling the shots. I can choose who I want to be. I can choose how I want to represent myself. I determine my gender identity, my true self, my place in the world. But here's the truth. The letter I is not at the centre of the universe. Christ is the one who holds it all together. And in fact, while we go on, all of us doing this, acting as though we are at the centre of the universe, Christ allows us to keep breathing another breath, to keep our blood pumping through our body, to take another step, enjoy another day in his beautiful world that he made, even while we act like we're the ones in charge. Such a gracious king that he is. Now, the time is coming when that will end and we will face his judgment and we need to make sure we're with him, not against him. But he continues patiently with us in the meantime in this very messed up modern world. He still sustains it. I would have given up long ago if I was in his position. But this is Jesus. He graciously sustains all things still with but an effortless word. He's without equal. One last point. Probably the most important one, actually. It's positioned right in the middle of all these other descriptors of what kind of role Christ has. Uh, if you've been noticing, we've kind of been jumping around the passage a little bit. Maybe that's felt frustrating for you if you're a very orderly mind. But this is actually kind of the way that the passage works. From that word whom, after son, we get what's called a chiasm. Okay? Picture it a bit like a, a mountaintop where there's points on the outside and then points halfway up and then a big point in the middle. In the Bible, that's called a chiasm. And so on the outside, we have the point that he was appointed heir of all things. And then you come to the bottom of the verse that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become superior to the angels. You see how those two things are related? He's the heir of all things and he sits on the throne. Great. Come one step in, so halfway up the mountain and slightly more significant, is the fact that he created the world and then you come one step in from the end and you get that he sustains the world. Those two things are also related. What's right in the middle of them? What's on the mountaintop? It's this phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Here we come to the crux of the matter. Jesus is God. He is God. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal, holy God. And this verse gives us two images to show that. First, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, think about the sun. We're using a lot of like cosmological imagery today, aren't we? <laughs> think about the sun. Uh, you look up at the sun, and hopefully not directly, but you look up and you might think, well, yeah, there it is. There's the sun up in the sky. But you're actually not looking at the sun. What you're looking at is the light from the sun that actually left the source about eight minutes ago and now has gotten here to Earth, travelling 150 million kilometres or whatever it is. So you're not actually looking directly at the sun itself, the object. You're looking at the light from the sun. So too with Jesus, we don't perceive the Father 
We do not see the Father, at least in our present world. We do see the Son. His works and life are recorded for us in the Gospels. He came here and dwelt in flesh as sort of the light from God that has come here to earth. And through perceiving the Son, looking at the Son, we see the Father. Because really, the Son and its light are pretty inseparable, right? There was never a time where the Son was not casting off light. So too, there was never a time in which the Son was not. The Son has always been with the Father as the Spirit has Uh, And so when we see the Son, we see the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And so do you want to know what God's like? Read the Gospels. If you've been doing the Bible reading plan, you've just finished the Gospel of John recently. That's great. If you haven't been doing that, pick up the Gospel of John this Christmas. 20 chapters, it'll take you three hours to read. Take an afternoon. Go to a cafe. Get a coffee or a chai or whatever. Read it. Encounter Jesus and therefore encounter God. Another image is given here of the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus is not just like God or kind of similar to God. He is God. He is an exact representation of God. Like when you go to get your passport renewed. Uh, I've had to go and do that recently. I did it this week. And when you do the little checklist form that you you take into the the, uh, post office, there's big words on the on the form on one of the points that says original documents only, no photocopies, not even certified originals. You have to show them the original thing. Um, And Jesus is much like that. He's not just a photocopy of the Father. He's not just a likeness of. He is the OG. (laughs) He is original. He is of one essence with the Father, the same nature as it says here. He is of one essence with the Spirit. He is part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all distinct persons, but all fully God. So, if we get this wrong about Jesus, and here's the big thing, if we get this wrong that he is God, we lose salvation over it. How do you lose your salvation? Easy, deny that Jesus is God. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. If you ever had one come and knock on your door, you can have a really interesting conversation with them, hopefully a gentle conversation, uh, where uh, if you go and you point them to uh, Colossians 1.15 and ask them where it says that all things were created through Christ, um, they'll take out their version of the Scriptures and they've inserted the word other in there. All other things were created through Christ, as if Jesus was the first created thing and then all other things followed. The reason they have to insert that word, and it's not there in the original Greek, the reason they have to is because their theology bounds them to thinking that Jesus is not God. And where it leads for them is they actually affirm not a faith-based salvation, but a works-based salvation. You have to work your way to God's affection and approval. Whereas we as Christians hold that, no, it's purely by faith in Jesus Christ. No work that we add of our own. The only thing we bring to the transaction is our sin. (laughs) (laughs) not any works. Um, If Jesus is not God, if he is not infinite, then he cannot pay the infinite price tag for sin. We have offended a holy God, an infinite God, and therefore we have an infinite price tag. If Jesus is not the eternal God himself, he can't pay that price. You follow me? If Jesus is not God, we lose our salvation over it. That's why this is so important. 
unless Jesus is God, our sin remains unforgiven. So, to be able to joyfully sing these words, glory to the newborn king, we need to acknowledge that this baby in a manger, born in obscurity with donkeys hanging around and probably poop on the floor, this baby is himself the living God. And of course, he doesn't stay a baby. He grows up and he does what only God can do in dying for our sins. And so here's what we've seen. Jesus is without equal. He is God's unique revelation. In the past, God spoke through prophets in many other ways, and that's a good thing. But now in these last days, he's spoken in the much better way, through his son. The much better much more personal revelation to which all the past ones actually pointed. The second thing we've seen, he fulfills God's unique role. He is the heir of all creation, ruling it as the saviour king. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the radiance and representation of God because he is God. And so what do we do in responding to all this? Well, first, we we see how all of those words, all of those descriptions of Jesus pack into these words of this carol. Glory to the newborn king. These words cannot simply be sung thoughtlessly like at a carols in the domain. These are powerful words about an incredible God. And so what can we do but fall again afresh in worship? See this man who is nothing less but the revelation of God to us. The one who has come in these last days to us. The creator, the sustainer, the heir, the king, the saviour, who alone is God. Glory to this newborn king. Let's pray. Lord, together, those of us who cling to you in faith, say glory to you, our great saviour. We long to live lives of worship to you. And know that we still fall so far short. Through your gracious work at the cross, Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing forgiveness. We honour you as the heir, the king who loves. And Lord, as forgiven people, Thank you that we can grow into people who are becoming more like you, the Son, that we might worship you with greater wholeheartedness and less division in our lives. Please continue to do this wonderful work as we spend this time in Advent. Cause us to see you more and not have unperceptive or presumptuous ears. And I pray for those, Lord, who may be here this morning, considering these things for the first time, or perhaps reconsidering them. Similarly, Lord, give them ears to hear, eyes to see your glorious Son.
In his name we pray. Amen.